You know, it can be incredibly polarizing. By polarizing, I mean it, it divides people really clearly and evenly and not always evenly, but, but you can make clear distinctions. It's food, right? Like if I put up some pictures of some food in, in the room here, we would have differing opinions. Brussels sprouts. I love Brussels sprouts. I do. You put them in a cast iron skillet with some bacon and they're amazing, right? And if you don't like them, that's okay. You can be wrong. Brussels sprouts. Mushrooms, I put up with them, but like I, I could live without mushrooms. I don't need mushrooms. I could, like mushrooms could go away. I mean, they grow in poop. Like you guys get that, right? Like that's, without it, you don't have mushrooms. And somebody was the first one to be like, I'm going to eat that and good on them. Olives, another food I could probably do without, right? You, some of y'all are out there like olives are God's gift to, to mankind. Me, I, I, I don't get it. It's like bitter and not, it's, it's like a, a grape that went bad is an olive. Pickles, right? My kids are divided on pickles. Some of my kids are like, yes, give me the burger with all the pickles. Some of my kids are like, I don't want any pickles. Some of my kids are like, give me the burger with the pickles. And then they get in there like, I didn't want pickles. I don't like pickles. Pickles can divide people. How about this one? Black licorice. No, no, no. This one, if we were to split up on opposite sides of the room, there'd be like on the, the pro side, there'd be like one person. And then there'd be all the rest of us same people on the opposite side of the room going, that is the most disgusting food. Black licorice, licorice should be red and it should taste like cherries or strawberries or whatever it tastes like and not like whatever that is. How about, how about this one? Mayonnaise, anybody? Yeah. Here's the thing, y'all. They, I wish I could have gotten clearer pictures. There was one that I, was my favorite. It was this poor lady in a subway car that, and somebody snapped a picture of her, but she brought it on herself. She was like passed out like this with a jar of mayonnaise and a spoon in her hand on the subway. But it was way too grainy to get it in there to, to show up. But this is the, the, the mayonnaise-eating world record holder. She has eaten the most mayonnaise in the shortest amount of time. And that's safe because no one's going to be like, yeah, I'm going to do that. Yeah, that, that's the record that I want to take down. How about this one? Cilantro? Yeah, there's, so people are divided on this too. Some are like, no, it tastes like soap. And other people are like, no, it's, it's so good. You have to have cilantro on food. I, I'm not a huge cilantro fan. And then the number one, which divides people, is pineapple on pizza. These are polarizing foods. Even just in the responses in the room, it, some elicited cheers, some elicited booze, right? I mean, you, you are faced with just a picture of food and you have a gut response. You side on one side or the other. Either you like it or you don't like it. But there's really not very many of those that somebody's going to kind of be right in the middle and go, oh, I mean, it's okay, it's fine. You have a response, you have a reaction. And here's the deal, y'all. As we move from last week, looking at Jesus come on the scene and, and you know, action is called and he bursts on the scene and he's doing all this incredible and, and amazing things. In the section of Mark that we're studying together tonight, Jesus comes into focus. And as Jesus comes into focus in these chapters, we're going to find that, that Jesus is polarizing, that people really don't kind of straddle the fence with Jesus and go, I, I, he's all right. I could take him or leave him. I mean, I wouldn't, he wouldn't be like my first call if I got thrown in jail, but I mean, he's a, he's a good guy. He's okay. Either people are all in with Jesus or people hate Jesus. And, and that's who he is. That's who he was. That's who he still is. As we consider our world, as we consider the, the culture that we find ourselves in, as we consider this room tonight, 
when it comes to the person of Jesus, there is no straddling the, the center line. There is no, well, Jesus is okay with me. There was a song back in the 70s called Jesus is Just All Right. That's not an option, okay? When we're studying the person of Jesus and the life of Jesus, the, the purpose of the, the scriptures is that we would make a decision about Jesus, one way or the other. And that's what we're going to see in Mark chapter 3, verse 7, believe it or not, all the way to Mark chapter 8, verse 9, tackling a big section tonight. But as we jump in again, coming off of last week where Jesus kind of came on the scene in a, 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 a strong way and was healing people and teaching like nobody had heard, and he was doing things that were making the Pharisees look side-eyed at him and going, you're doing things that don't line up with our system, our religious system, and Jesus was saying, yeah, I'm here to do something new. We pick up and we continue, and it opens with this reminder to us that Jesus at this point in time is famous. Jesus is gathering a massive following. In Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, it says Jesus withdrew for, with his disciples to the sea in a great crowd, okay? Pay attention to that. Great crowd. The word for great there in the Greek is mega, where we get that, that adjective. It's mega. It's huge. A great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea. Words? Words. Idumea, there it is. And from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon, when the great crowd, there it is again, heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. So picture this. Jesus is attracting people from all over Israel. Even from across the Jordan River, they're coming to, to, to be around Jesus. And you are thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute, I thought you said Jesus is polarizing. He is. Because when they come and encounter Jesus, they're going to have to make a decision about Jesus. The crowds are massing and, and they're, they're interested in Jesus because they've heard about Jesus and they've heard that he's healing people and they've heard that he's casting out demons and they've heard that he's kind of ruffling the feathers of the Pharisees. And so they're like, we've got to go see this guy. But once they see him and hear him specifically, they're going to be brought to this decision of, are we going to stay or are we going to leave? In fact, in John's gospel, he records a situation like that where so many people had been following Jesus at the end of John chapter 6, and Jesus had been teaching hard things there, saying, man, you need to eat my body and drink my blood if you want eternal life. Again, a metaphor for coming to him and believing in him as our Savior. But so many people just walked away from him. They're like, you know what? It's not worth it. I'm out. And Jesus looked at his disciples and said, are you going to go too? And they said, no, we're going to stay with you because you have the words of life. There you see the polarization take place in real time. These crowds are coming to Jesus. They're going to have to make a decision. Well, Jesus makes a decision, so to speak, for a portion of the crowd because he calls out 12 of them and says, you're the ones that I want to be my personal followers. You're the ones that I want to be my disciples. Jesus was considered a rabbi at the time. A rabbi had disciples, that is students. And Jesus calls out 12 of them, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas, Mark says, who betrayed him. And so Jesus is calling them, and they come to him because he calls them. Notice that in verse 14. He appointed the 12, or sorry, verse 13. He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Jesus calls and they come. And then he appoints them and says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be with me. In other words, I want you to have a relationship with me. I want you to know me. I want you to learn from me. And then I'm going to send you out and I want you to go and I want you to preach. And yes, he's going to give them authority over 
the, the demons and authority to do miracles and things to validate their message. But Jesus is calling these 12. They're going to be part of his, his inner circle. But then if we pick up in verse 22, the scene shifts back to the opposition. Verse 22, the scribes come down from Jerusalem. So now you've got the, the, the uppity ups in, in Judaism. They've heard what Jesus is doing, and they come down from Jerusalem. Jesus, at this point in time, remember, is up in, in the Galilean region. So he's north from Jerusalem, but you always went down from Jerusalem because Jerusalem was up on Mount Zion. So they come down from to go up north to Galilee because they're curious about Jesus. And they get there and they hear what he's doing. And notice what they're saying. They say in verse 22, he is possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons, and he casts out demons by him. So he's saying Satan is allowing him to cast out these demons. A demon is enabling him to cast out these demons. But Jesus responds to them and he says, can Satan cast out Satan? That doesn't make any sense. And then he goes on and he says, look, a house can't be divided against itself. It won't stand. A kingdom can't be divided against itself. It won't survive. No one can enter a strong man's house unless he first binds the strong man. And he says, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Some of y'all have left, lost sleep over that, right? You've wondered, what is the eternal sin? What is the blasphemy of the Spirit? Have I done it? Okay, Mark's going to answer this for us by recording what Jesus said and saying in verse 30 then, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. You know what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is? It's witnessing Jesus do the miracles that he's doing, casting out demons, healing everything, and attributing that power to a demonic spirit. They're blaspheming the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit was the one enabling Jesus to do all those things. So to blaspheme the Spirit was to say it wasn't the Holy Spirit, it was a demon enabling him to do that. So if you're worried that you committed the unpardonable sin because you cut somebody off in traffic last night, you can sleep well tonight, okay? It's not the same thing. But I just, I, I want you to see what Mark's doing here. We've got the 12 disciples, inner circle. Scribes and Pharisees, they're on the outside. He's contrasting. He's like, these are they're the polarizing effect of Jesus. They're with Jesus, they're against Jesus. In fact, so much so, some of them are committing a sin that will never be forgiven them. And then you get to Jesus' family. And we're going, oh, okay, well, this is going to be good, right? Jesus' family, Mary and the brothers, and, and this is going to be great because some of them go on and write Bible books later. It's going to, it's going to be awesome. Well, before we get to, to verse 31, jump back up to verse 21. It says, when the, the crowd had gathered so that they could not even eat because of how dense it was and how crowded everything was, it says in verse 21, when his family heard this, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Okay, here you have Mary and the brothers and Jesus' family going, we got to go get Jesus because he's hurting the family name. He's crazy. That's what they think about him. Because they're going, we're just poor carpenters. What is going on here? And so we pick up in verse 31. His mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting, again, a crowd. Notice, anytime Mark talks about a crowd, he talks about a crowd so often in this gospel. Jesus was just fascinating to people. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mom and your brothers are outside. They, they want you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those that sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. 
So now you have Jesus talking about another polarization where even at this point at least, now they come around, but even at this point at least in Jesus' earthly ministry, his family's even against him, right? They're on the outside. But then Jesus says, but you know who's on the inside? The one who does the will of my father. Again, Jesus is polarizing. Well, then we come to chapter four and Jesus begins to teach in parables. Jesus began to teach in parables. A parable is a story with a point, okay? So it's, it's as though Jesus is teaching through these grand illustrations that are all there to, to give one central message. And so the, the first parable that he talks about that you may have heard about before if you've been around the church is the parable of the sower. That a man goes out and he sows seed and some falls on the rocky path and the birds come down and they, they snatch that seed away and, and it's gone. It doesn't even sprout. There's no root there. The birds just take it right away. And then there's another soil and it's the rocky path and the, the seed sown there. Well, it, it, it shows some life and it responds because it's shallow soil. So the roots go a little bit there and it, it, it bursts forth and shows life. But then the sun comes up and begins to scorch that seed and it can't survive because of the rocky soil and there's no depth there. And so it just, it dies. And then there's other soil, which is the thorny soil. And he throws some seed in the thorny soil. And, and that, again, okay, it, it's got some life. And, and it, it looks like it's going to do okay, but then it, it can't survive because the thorns begin to, to encroach upon it. And, and they're bigger and stronger. And they choke the life out of that seed and it dies. And then finally, there's the good soil. And the seed that falls there, that's the seed that comes to life and bears fruit. Does what the farmer wanted it to do. The sower wanted it to do. The disciples go to Jesus later and they say, hey, can you help us understand this? And Jesus walked through the meaning. He said, you know, the seed on the path, that's those who hear the word because the, the sower is, is sowing the word, right? The message, the gospel. And the seed that hits the path, that's the seed. Those are those that Satan immediately comes and snatches it away. That's somebody that says to you, I don't want anything to do with Jesus or God or the gospel at all. We've been going over to Laguna Woods and doing some door knocking recently to invite people to come and be a part of a Bible study. And sometimes we'll knock on a door and somebody will open the door and we'll say, hey, I'm Pastor PJ and this is Pastor Rod and we're doing a Bible study. And before we even get study out of our mouth, they're looking at us going, no, thank you. I'm, I'm not a Christian. And they're shutting the door on us. Right? That's an example of the seed that hits the, 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 the road where it doesn't have any soil whatsoever and it's just taken away right away. But then Jesus says there's another soil and that's the rocky path. Those are the people that hear the word and they initially they respond with joy. And they're like, this is great. But then what happens? The, the, the trials and the tribulations and the suffering arises in the world and, and there's no depth to their commitment to follow Jesus. And so once that happens, they, they're thinking to themselves, this isn't what I signed up for. And they, they walk away, they reject Jesus. And then there's the third soil where it falls on the, the thorny patch. And again, there's, there's an initial evidence of, of what appears to be life. And this is somebody who receives the word, again, maybe receives the word with joy, but then once they realize what it costs to follow Jesus, that, man, I'm going to have to say no to myself. I'm going to have to practice self-control and discipline, and I'm going to have to fight sin and put sin off. And, man, the, the lures and temptations of the world that are out there, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life, those things look really good. When those things begin to creep in, they choke out the life, and that person says, following Jesus isn't worth it, and they leave. And then there's the good soil. And Jesus says, that's the person who hears the word, believes the word, keeps the word, and bears fruit. That's genuine Christianity. The person that is all in with Jesus. Like I said, there's no straddle in the fence when it comes to Jesus. And Jesus is even teaching that in the parables. But you know what else? The, the, the other reason he's polarizing with the parables is because some of what he's doing here is judgment. If you look in, in Mark chapter 4, verse 10, 
It says, when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. Hey, Rabbi, what, what gives? You normally don't teach us this way. What are you doing? Verse 11, he said to them, to you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But notice his language. For those, notice the, the terminology here, outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So Jesus is teaching in parables as a way to, really as an exercise of passive judgment against those who have rejected him. And that's above my pay grade to figure all how all that works. All I know is Jesus knows who they are. God knows who they are. And he's teaching this way in a, a form of passive judgment, which again polarizes the people. Sometimes we think we need to, to package Jesus in a way that everybody will just be okay with Jesus. Sometimes we think, man, I, I just I, I need to make Jesus look good and then... My, my friends who really hate him are going to love him if they just really know the Jesus that I know. But what we find time and time and time again in the Bible and then throughout human history is that that's not the way it works. Y'all, if we present the real Jesus, the biblical Jesus, what we're doing is we're presenting him and calling people to respond. And when we present that Jesus, what we find is Jesus divides. And that's our first point tonight. Realize Jesus divides. He divides. There are many reasons why that coexist bumper sticker that you've probably seen on people's cars does not work. Many reasons why, right? But one of the reasons why is this point right here. Jesus did not come here to, to have kumbaya and everybody get together and have all the world religions just coexist together. Jesus came with a message that says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus came saying, if you want eternal life, you must come to me. Jesus came, as his own words say, to divide. Even members of one household Parent against child, brother against sister, in-law against in-law. Jesus is saying he's divisive in that sense. My son Joshua has been cursed by having to embrace all of the sports teams that I like that nobody else likes. And that's really not optional in my house. He is a fan of my teams or he doesn't live there. I mean, that, it really just comes down to that. So he is a fan of the Cowboys, and he has a cowboy hat, a, a, not a cowboy hat like yeehaw, but a cowboy hat like <laughs> Troy Aikman in, in the Dallas Cowboys. And he's been wearing that, and he went to La Paz Intermediate School uh, last year, and he used to come home and be like, Dad, this hat, people hate it. Like, I walk into school, and I don't even say things to people, and I don't even know who they are, and they're cussing me out and telling me how much they hate the Cowboys and how much I'm a, an idiot for liking them. And I was like, well, just hold on, Josh, because we're getting to the promised land where everybody likes the Cowboys, and you're going to be fine. You just need to wait. But that hat is polarizing, right? There's some people that see that, that logo of that sports team, and they go, all right, yeah. And there's other people that go, man, you're crazy. Why would you ever follow a team like that? It's polarizing. That's Jesus, guys. Jesus came with a message that was divisive. Jesus was doing things that was calling people to, to, to be in or out. 
And I wonder, maybe you have people in your life who don't understand why you want to follow Jesus. Maybe you have people in your life who tonight don't get why you're here and not out partying with them. Maybe if we can be honest with ourselves, some of you guys are here tonight not quite sure why all of these people around you love Jesus as much as they do. Jesus calls for a decision to be made. We can't just sit there and say, Jesus is just all right with me. That doesn't work. You're either all in with Christ or you're all out from Christ. Mark is going to develop this idea of the insiders and the outsiders throughout the gospel, but he does that right here, right? Mark chapter 3, the disciples, they're in. The scribes and Pharisees, they're out. The family, for now, they're out, but eventually they'll be in. Parables divide people as those that are in and those that are out. When we decide to follow Jesus, there's no doubt about it. We are deciding to swim upstream against this world. That there will be opposition. That you will not have to look far or hard to find people who aren't following Jesus who don't want the Jesus you love. But Jesus warned us that, right? What did he say? He said that the way to eternal life, what did he call it? He called it narrow. And he said it's hard. And he contrasted that with the way that leads to destruction, which he said is is broad, it's wide. And he said, and it's easy. Jesus is polarizing. There's not many that want to follow him on that hard and narrow path. Just like the, the, the parable of the soils. There are so many different responses, but there's only one genuine response. The others, eventually they, they say, you know what, I, I don't really want Jesus. And they walk away. Would you have tracked with Jesus here? Are you tracking with him tonight? Are you following him today? What if it gets harder for you? Are you still all in? Do you have a line, maybe, that you're not willing to cross to follow him? Are you in as long as it's easy and comfortable and you just start kind of crossing your fingers and hoping that that's going to be the rest of your life? Or are you all in no matter what happens? And you might say, man, that, that just sounds intense and that doesn't sound too appealing. And the disciples kind of were in the same boat. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 27 after Jesus has been saying some difficult things. Peter said, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? So Peter's asking the question. He's going, we've given up everything to follow you. And this is hard. What are we hoping for, Jesus? Jesus said to them, verse 28, Truly I say to you, In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands for my sake, will receive a hundredfold in eternal life. So is it hard here? Yes. But y'all, it's worth it. Because the life to come will make it all worth it. But Jesus is polarizing. Jesus came to divide. 
We pick back up in Mark chapter 4, and all of a sudden Jesus is back on the scene with his disciples, and he's doing some pretty amazing and powerful things. In fact, my favorite miracle happens in John 4, 35. It says, on that day, well, the whole passage, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving, here's the word again, the crowd. You see it there? Leaving the crowd, they took Jesus with them in the boat just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And there was a great windstorm that arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling up with water. And Jesus was asleep on a cushion. And they woke him, saying, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he woke, and he rebuked the wind and the sea, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Have you no faith? And they're filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Which is a great question. Have you no faith? And then Jesus goes from there and they land and they come to this region of the Gerasenes. And Jesus is encountered with this man that's a demoniac. He's demon-possessed. And so great was the possession of this man that they were, nobody could control him. And the townspeople had tried, and nobody could do it. And, and they had bound him with chains and shackles, and he was breaking those under the supernatural power. And he, he comes down, he falls down before Jesus, and they begin to cry out because they are afraid of what Jesus is going to do to them. And Jesus says, who are you? And the, the demons say, we are legion, for we are many. And then they say, you know what, Jesus, cast us into these pigs. And Jesus says, okay, go for it. Go into the pigs. And, and, and out they go, and they go into the pigs. And then they run down the mountainside, and all the pigs drowned. And this man is left sitting here in his right state of mind. Talk about polarizing, because you know what happens next? The shepherds that were nearby taking care of the pigs. I don't know if you call them shepherds. Pig, piggards? Piggards? Piglets. Anyways, they were there. They were taking care of the pigs. They see what happens. They run off to town and they're like, guys, we got a problem. This Jesus guy was here and you know the crazy guy in the caves that cuts himself and dances around naked? Yeah, that guy, he healed him. Yeah, he's in his right mind. Well, okay, well, what's the problem? Well, all of our pigs, they're gone. They're dead. The demons went into the pigs and they ran into the, into the water. What? Yeah, it happened. I was there. I saw it happen. And so the townspeople, they get fearful Remember, Jesus is polarizing. So the townspeople, they become afraid of Jesus. And they go and they beg Jesus. It says, verse 17, they began to beg Jesus to leave, to depart from their region. But the man, again, the polarization here, look at what the man begs. Verse 18, as Jesus was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed, he begged him that he might be with him. The crowd says, get out of here. The man says, take me with you polarization of Jesus. The man is responding in trust, wanting to follow Jesus and be all in with Jesus. Well, then Jesus, the scene shifts when Jesus crossed again in the boat to the other side. Notice again, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea, the Sea of Galilee. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and we'll return to Jairus in just a second. Jairus seeing him fell at his feet and he implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she might be made well and live. So here you have a father so desperate because his daughter is on her deathbed and he knows that Jesus has the power to do this. So he's coming, trusting that Jesus can come and do what Jesus and only Jesus could do and that is to heal her while they begin to go. 
And it says in verse 25, a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Notice the detail that Mark gives to this woman who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, even if I touch his garments, I will be made well. Again, you have the, the father believing Jesus can, saying, come and heal. And then you have this woman believing Jesus can, pushing her way through the crowds, desperate for anything because everything else has failed her. And she just wants to touch his robe, thinking, if I can get any relief. And she reaches out and she touches the fringe of his garments. In verse 30, Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out, because it said in verse 29, the, the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus perceives that power had gone out from him immediately turned about in the crowd. And he said, who touched me? And the disciples say to him, seriously? Jesus, do you see the crowd around you? What do you mean who touched you? Everybody's touching you. And Jesus says, no, this was different because this was a touch that was produced by faith. And I felt power leave me. And then the woman comes forward knowing that she was exposed and she confesses everything to him. And notice what Jesus says in verse 34. He said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now at this point, this is not faith. Jesus is going to die on the cross for her sins and rise from the dead three days later so that she can live with him forever. This is a faith that Jesus could, could heal her physically. And Jesus was communicating something more to her saying, your faith has made you well physically. Go in peace. And, and, and listen, there's a, a faith that you need to, to not just be made well physically, but also spiritually. Well, while this is all happening, verse 35, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Callous, hard, heartbreaking for Jairus, who's been there. And, and it, just imagine the angst as all of this is unfolding, and he's there with, with Jesus going, we, we have to go, she's dying. And Jesus stops because he wants to find out who touched him. And then he sees the, the envoy, the dispatch from his hometown, when, and he can think to himself and know what it means, and I'm, I'm sure his heart broke, and he was already weeping by the time they got to him and said, your daughter's dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. But what does Jesus say in verse 36? Overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only what? Believe. Faith. Belief. Right? You, you kind of picking up on the theme that we're hitting in the second section. Faith. Belief. Trust in Jesus. That Jesus is able to do what only Jesus can do. Do not fear, only believe. And he takes Peter and James and John up to the, the house and the people are gathered mourning and Jesus says, stop mourning. She's just asleep. And they laugh at him. And Jesus goes up in the room and he takes her hand and he says to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking and everybody was filled with amazement. But Jesus was inviting them to believe. Believe. Keep going in Mark chapter 6. Jesus comes to Nazareth, and this is his hometown. And he's there, and he's teaching, and he's doing things, and he's, he's expecting them to believe in him. And yet what he gets is they're going, who do you think you are? We know who you are. We, we watched you grow up. 
marries your mom and your brothers and sisters are with us. Where did you get this learning? Who do you think you are? They're incensed. They're offended, it says in the text, at Jesus. So Jesus leaves them because of their unbelief, because they refuse to believe. It says that he, he wasn't able even, because it wasn't the will of the Father, for him to do any miracles or any teaching in that town. And he leaves. It, it says in verse 6, he marveled because of their unbelief. Again, Jesus is polarizing. And what is Jesus doing as he's polarizing people? He's calling for them to believe. Well, then he sends out the 12 apostles and they go out and he's calling them to go out and, and to preach a message of repentance and faith, right? And it, he says there, look, if, if they're not going to receive you, which means if they're not going to believe you, shake the dust off your sandals and leave. If they're going to reject, if they're not going to believe, then leave. Then you've got John the Baptist, who was the forerunner, the first one that was going out with the message of repent and believe. And you see the ultimate rejection of John here as Herod has him executed and killed. Then you have the scene in, in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44, where Jesus is teaching. And again, a great crowd comes to him. And here's the thing. He's just found out that his cousin died. And Jesus is, is not going to be the most cheerful individual at this point. He's mourning that. And yet he comes to the, the, the crowd, to the, the, the location where he was taking his disciples to get away. And there's a massive crowd there. But it says that Jesus loved them. He had compassion on them. He felt pity for them. So he begins to teach them these things. And, and then all of a sudden he looks at his disciples and the disciples are saying, hey, we need to let them go because in and out closes soon and we've got no food for them. And Jesus says, well, find some food for him around here. Inviting their trust in him, their belief in him. And they say, well, all we got is this boy. He's got a few pieces of bread and some fish. Jesus says, great, bring it here. Can you imagine what the disciples are thinking at this point? Hopefully at this point they're going, oh, sweet. He's going to do something. This is going to be amazing. Because hopefully they've seen enough that calming the storm and, and raising the, the little girl who was dead and, and all of these things. And Jesus begins to multiply the loaves and the fish and they feed 5,000 men, probably 10 to 15,000 people from a little boy's lunch. And it's this invitation to believe. And then immediately he makes them get in the boat as it continues on in verse 45. And, and they're going across and Jesus stays behind. And then he begins to, to come walking on the water. Because why not, right? You're the son of God. It's like, uh, yeah, I could take the boat or I could just walk across. And it's pretty cool, so I'm just going to walk across. And he's going across and, and the disciples are in the boat and they see him coming and they're going, it's clearly, it's the most logical explanation is this is a ghost. That the, the ghost hunter show that's going to be around in, in 2023 or whatever, that it's, it's real and there's one. I see one. If I had a camera, if an iPhone was around, we would have it. We'd be rich. Anyways, they're terrified. And as Jesus goes to pass by, they realize it's him and they call out to him, hey, rabbi, remember us? And he gets in the boat with them, and, and then they continue their destination, their journey to their destination. But again, Jesus is asking them, believe. It says they were utterly astounded at what they were seeing. Yeah, no, no joke. This is a full-grown man walking on water, which I know all of you have tried that at a pool sometime. At some point in your life, you've been like, I'm just going to run and see how many steps I get out there. And you feel like you get seven or eight steps out in the middle of the pool, and some of you probably still think that you did, and you didn't. You were sinking as soon as you hit first toe in the water. You were going down. Because that's what happens. But Jesus is transcending all of this. But in verse 52, their hearts were hardened, meaning they're not fully there yet. They don't fully understand him. Verses 53 through 56, he heals more people, more crowds at Gennesaret. 
And then in chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, Jesus is back confronting the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were, were telling people, you know what you need to trust in? You need to trust in works righteousness. And Jesus is there to say, you know what? You have gotten it all wrong. So much so that you honor me with your lips. You honor the Father with your lips, but your heart is far from him. Your trust in your works, Pharisees, is not the type of trust that people need. Jesus is saying there's a different type of trust that people need. So he's confronting the Pharisees. And then in verses 14 through 23, he talks about what really defiles a person. He says, it's not what you touch. It's not on the outside. It's not like the leper back in chapter two that I healed or into the chapter one that I healed. It, that doesn't make somebody unclean. What makes somebody unclean is their internal state. Is that which comes out of the heart. That's what defiles a person. And the implication here is you need that remedied. And the only way you're going to get that is through me. And so point one, I said, Jesus divides. He's polarizing. And he is. Because of point number two. Because the thing that Jesus is after is our faith. And that's what he's been hammering home in this whole second section that we've been looking at. Inviting people to trust, inviting people to believe. The, the woman with the flow of blood, your faith has made you well. When, when, the, when Jairus' daughter died and the people came and said, He's de she's dead, leave the teacher alone. Jesus says, don't fear, only believe. And he, he's inviting faith over and over and over again. And see, that's the, that's the catalyst. That's what separates those inside from outside is, is whether or not you will put faith in Jesus, whether or not you will respond to his call to trust him. That's our second point tonight. Respond in faith to Jesus. Respond in faith to Jesus. And here's the, the deal, y'all. The disciples that said their hearts were hardened because they, they didn't fully understand yet. They didn't have the full picture that you and I have. And so this is a call that's more than just respond to faith in Jesus because he healed this woman's flow of blood or, or raised the, the daughter from the dead. This is a call tonight for you to, to put your faith in Jesus because Jesus is the only hope for what he talked about right there. What really defiles you, which is the fact that inside we are dark and black and, and sinful. That we are hostile and, and alienated from God. And that we have a, a sin problem that has defiled us and left us permanently unclean when it comes to our power to make ourselves clean. And so Jesus is calling us to believe in him and trust that he can remedy that and he alone can remedy that because he died on the cross for the forgiveness of those sins. For the cleansing of us. And that he rose from the dead three days later so that we would be able to also one day rise from the dead and to live with him forever. That's the ultimate object of our faith is the gospel. Is that Jesus has dealt with our sin problem. And he's calling for a response. And tonight you are being asked to respond if you haven't already, to faith in Jesus. So, took my daughter out for a little daddy-daughter date just the other day, and we went to Pete's Coffee, and she got a caramel macchiato, and she was in heaven, and it was awesome. It was, it was so great. But while we were there, we started talking about marriage, and I said, look, eventually I'll let you. He's going to have to be a pretty amazing guy. But I said, as long as he loves Jesus more than he loves you, and he comes and talks to dad, We'll consider it. But I started talking to her about my dating relationship with Amanda. And she wanted to hear the story of how I proposed to her. And so I told her, I, I said, well, we were at her house and, and 
Um, I said, well, why don't we go get some food? Let's go get some lunch. And she was like, yeah, that's, that's great. And so we went in, in out to the driveway to get in her car. And I'm not from San Diego. So she was like, well, I'll drive. And y'all, this is before iPhones, okay? So this is pre like Google Maps and I couldn't just put into Yelp where I wanted. So I was like, no, 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 it's good. I'll, I'll, I'll drive. I know, I, I know a place, I'll take you. She's like, what? But she was practicing biblical submission even before she had to. She got in the passenger seat. And she was like, okay, let's go. So we get on the freeway and we're driving and I exit because I proposed up at, at, uh, at the Presidio there in, in uh, San Diego, Presidio Park. And uh, we got off the freeway and she goes, there's no, there's no restaurants here. I, said, I got it. Don't worry about it. I'm fine. I know a place. She was like, no, there's no restaurants here. I've lived in San Diego my whole life. Where are you? She was getting a little agitated at this point, a little hangry. And I get it. It was lunchtime. But we wound our way back up through this neighborhood and everything else to get to this gazebo where I had everything set up. My sister-in-law set it all up for us. And I charged her. I said, if anyone steals the ring off the table, Emily, I will kill you. And uh, so she hung out and she watched and she waited until we got there. And then I parked the car and we got out and I made a saw. She looked over and saw the table and she started crying even before we got there. And I, I grabbed the ring and I got down on one knee and I opened it up and I said, will you marry me? And then she said, yes, right? Like, you guys were like, whoa, where's this story going to go? I'm so, I'm so hooked. What's going to happen? No, she said yes. Why did she say yes? Because that's a, that's a situation that calls for a response. Right? When, when you are asked that question, ladies, will you marry me? Make sure you say yes if you want to say yes. If not, hopefully you can Uber home because it's going to be real awkward after that. But you need to make the response known, right? Here's the deal, y'all. When we think about the person of Jesus, and some of y'all tonight are excited about being around Jesus, and you're overwhelmed at the thought of being with Jesus, but you haven't yet responded to Jesus. You haven't actually yet transferred that trust and faith away from your own sense of of self-righteousness to say, I need Jesus and his righteousness completely. There's a guy, I told you, we've been knocking on doors over in Laguna Woods, and there was a guy that we met this week who um, answered the door, and super friendly guy, and, and started talking to us, and he said to us, he said, well, I'm, I'm a Jew, I'm, I'm Jewish, and we said, great, would you be interested in coming to the Bible study? He said, well, I actually am interested, because I'm trying to, def- to figure out if Jesus really is the Messiah, we said, well, we're studying the Gospel of John which is all about Jesus, we'd love to have you come. And praise God, he came, and, and he wants to go out, and he wants to, to, to grab lunch with me. But here's the, the deal, y'all, for, for this guy, for Michael, eventually he's going to need to make a decision about Jesus. There's going to need to be a response where he decides, Lord willing, to put his trust in Jesus. To say, yes, I'm all in for Jesus. Jesus divides people, and the catalyst to that division is what you do with him. It's what you do with him tonight. And yes, y'all, we can talk about, well, isn't there the doctrine of election? And so, yes, 100%. But look, where you are tonight, here's the deal. You know what's keeping you from Jesus? Whether or not you will trust him. You. Whether or not you will choose to follow Jesus. And tonight, you have the power to choose to follow Jesus to choose to put your trust in Jesus. That's the response that's being called for, to come and follow Jesus. 
Jesus has beckoned you to believe in him. And the question is, will you? And you have everything that you need. Paul in Romans 1 says, creation testifies to the existence of God. That his glory and power is on display. 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Meaning that, that this book that we have right here is the, the word of God. And it, it tells you everything that you need to know about who Jesus is and what it looks like to follow him. And so the question is, will you believe? Will you f- follow him? Will you trust in him tonight? And here's a follow-up question for you. If you're saying no, can I say what's holding you back tonight? What's your holdup? What's your obstacle? I'm not asking you to follow a, a personality. I'm not asking you to follow a denomination. I'm not asking you to follow a preacher. I'm asking you to follow Jesus. And try as you might, you will not be able to hang any charge against him. I'll fail you. Your leaders will fail you. Your friends will fail you. Jesus will never fail you. Will you trust him? Well, to this point, Jesus has been dealing with Israel predominantly. Israelites predominantly. But look at verse 24 after this conversation with the Pharisees and the scribes about what defiles a person, it says, from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So now we're on, in non-Jewish territory. Now we're venturing into Gentile lands. Gentile just means non-Jew. All of us in this room, unless you're a Jew, we're all Gentiles. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Why couldn't he be hidden? Because Jesus is famous. People are fascinated by Jesus until they get around him and then they're, they're forced to make that, that decision. But immediately a woman rose whose little daughter had an unclean spirit and she had heard of him and she came and and fell down at his feet. Verse 26, Mark is very clear. Now the woman was a Gentile. Remember Mark's writing to Roman Christians, Gentile believers at this point in time. So their ears are going to perk up right here as they're reading about this instance in, in Jesus' ministry. The woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician woman by birth and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus responds to her and says this, let the little children or let the children be fed first, meaning the Jews, the Israelites, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it out to the dogs. You might be thinking, wow, that, that's, that's harsh from Jesus. But I also think Jesus was setting up this interaction, this response from this woman where she makes this amazing, talk about faith, makes this amazing faith-fueled response where she says this in verse 28, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table They eat the children's crumbs. In the other gospel accounts, it says that Jesus was amazed by her faith. Amazed by her faith. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is a Gentile. Now Jesus is is pushing boundaries. Probably even for his disciples. Them going, okay, whoa, we were willing to put up with Matthew because at least Matthew was one of us. We still don't really like him all that much, Jesus, but hey, he, he was at least one of us. He's a tax collector. He's a kind of schmarmy looking dude, but whatever, we'll take him. But this woman's a Gentile, Jesus, what are you doing? You're the Jewish Messiah. He then returned from the region of Tyre and went through, it says, verse 31, Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and then into the region of the Decapolis. So he's making this big journey around the the, the outer banks of the, the eastern side of the, the Sea of Galilee over to the, the Transjordan side of the, 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 the words, Decapolis. 
And it says there, again, Gentile territory, this deaf man comes to him who had a speech impediment, and the people bring him to Jesus and beg him to lay his hands on him. He takes him aside from the crowd privately, and he puts his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephphathah, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure. Man, just to be astonished was one thing, but to be astonished beyond measure, right? Saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the, the mute to speak. Again, another Gentile, Jesus is now healing. Jesus is expanding his reach. Jesus is doing things, causing some of his disciples to say, what are you doing? Then in chapter 8, the doors blow wide open in Jesus' relationship to the Gentile world. Because in those days when a great crowd again had gathered, this is still in the Decapolis, this is a Gentile crowd, okay? 4,000, this is different than the 5,000. There's many differences between the two accounts. Some people want to say it's the same account. It's not the same account. It's a new group, 4,000 people. There were 5,000 men. Here it just says there's 4,000 people total gathered here, right? And they gather around Jesus. Same thing happens. They're, they're, they've been with me for three days, and they've, we've run out of food. They've got nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry, verse 3, to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can we feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? It's like, what kind of short-term memory do you have? Do you not remember, right? But I would have been right there with him, I'm sure. And so he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directs the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd and a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and they were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces, left over seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Gentile Jesus. Jesus with the Gentiles. Uh, this would have been shocking the system for the disciples. Saying, what, why are we here? Why are we not back with the Jews? And I think it's because Jesus was trying to help them understand another point about him. And it's a point that Matthew eventually got. Because you remember, I told you last time we were together, that Matthew's gospel opens with a genealogy. And that genealogy in Matthew's gospel, it terminates in the person of Father Abraham, Abraham, right? And the, the Abrahamic covenant, where Paul said that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham when he told Abraham, in you will all the families of the earth be blessed. That includes the Gentiles. How are they going to be blessed through, through Abraham? Through one of his descendants named Jesus. And so Jesus is here showing his disciples, those with eyes to see and ears to hear, that he is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. That he is there for a, a, a mission and a goal that is much bigger even than Israel. And here's the, the, the awesome reality, guys. That mission and that goal of Jesus involved not only the, the Gentiles in first century Palestine, it involves the Gentiles in this room too. That's our third and final point tonight. It's this, be thankful for our inclusion in all of this. Be thankful for our inclusion in all of this. Who was helping Mark write this gospel? You guys remember? Peter, right? Did Peter know a thing or two about the whole Jew-Gentile, should we include the Gentiles or not conversation? Yeah, he did. You remember Cornelius and Peter? 
Remember when Peter's up on the rooftop and he sees the vision of the sheep come down, it's got all these unclean animals. And, and Peter's like, I'm not going to do that, God. And, and God's like, Peter, arise, kill and eat. And Peter's like, no, thanks. And then it comes down again. He's like, no, thanks. And then it comes out and he's like, okay, fine, I'll do it. I, uh, foods are not unclean. And then God's like, yeah, I'm about to rock your world even more because there's a Gentile who's here for you at the, the gate. Why don't you go hang out with him for a little bit? His name's Cornelius. And I want you to tell him about Jesus. And so Peter is like, whoa, what's going on? Realizing that God's plan is so much bigger than he ever thought it possible. In fact, that's what I was talking with Michael about, the, the Jew from our Laguna Woods ministry. As, as we finished up our time in the Gospel of John study this past week, he came up and we were chatting together. And, uh, and he was talking to me about the, the idea of the church. And I said, well, Michael, you understand, like, the original church, they, they didn't set out to be un-Jewish or non-Jewish. Like, they just were sitting there going, we're just the Jews that have found the Messiah, and it was outsiders that finally said, well, we got to separate you guys, the Jews that found the Messiah, from the Jews that don't think they found the Messiah yet. So we're going to call you guys Christians, little Christ, followers of Christ. We're the ones that have been grafted in, and y'all, we should be thankful for that. So thankful for that. And Jesus is already showing that and hinting to that here in Mark as he's going out and he's doing this work among the Gentiles. Saying, what I'm doing is so much bigger than just one particular nation. Israel has a special place in God's economy, in God's design, in God's plans, in God's future. But he has allowed us to be a part of that too. And we need to be thankful for that, be grateful for that. So that we have the opportunity to make a decision about Jesus. Jesus is polarizing. Some love him and some, many, reject him. And the issue comes down to faith. Because at the end, there's another division that's going to take place. And the Bible talks about this. In one place, it says, Jesus describes it as the separation of the sheep and the goats. The sheep are those that will enter into eternal life, and the goats will, are those that will enter into eternal damnation. And you know what it's going to come down to? The deciding factor? What'd you do with Jesus? What'd you do with Jesus? So that's the question I want to leave you with tonight. What have you done with Jesus? And if you're waiting to, to make that response, in part, you've already responded. But I would also ask you and challenge you and, and ask you to think about tonight, why not now? What's holding you back from being all in for Jesus? Maybe pull your leader aside, pull me aside, one of us aside, peers aside, Pastor Rod aside. We'd love to talk to you about that. If you've got objections, you, you don't need to be bashful. But what have you done with Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Christ. And thank you that in your word, you have brought him into focus. 
and brought us to a place where we can understand enough to be able to make a decision about Jesus. And I pray that in this room, Lord, that whether tonight or tomorrow or a month from now or a year from now, that, that every single person in this room could one day say, I've trusted Jesus with everything that I am. And even as I pray that, God, I pray that we would not gamble our eternal destiny on trivial objections or the sins of, of human beings that have jaded us towards Christianity tonight. I, I pray that we would not allow that to keep us from Christ, not knowing what tomorrow holds. Jesus is the most significant, most important person the world could ever know, will ever know, has ever known. And the most important thing that we must decide is what will we do with Jesus? Will we trust him? Will we come to him? Will we put our faith in him that he died on the cross for our sins because we were alienated from a holy and righteous God? And that dying on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins completely and gave us his righteousness credited to our account. so that we're forgiven and now declared righteous. And then he rose from the dead three days later so that we will one day overcome death as well to be with him forever and ever and ever. Make that appealing to us, God. Make that beautiful to us, desirable to us. Thank you that it's possible because of your grace and your mercy and your love for us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.